Lord, we're so thankful for um, salvation. Thank you for Jesus. Uh, thank you for the incarnation. Lord, thank you that as we come into a, a, a new year, uh, that we do not come in um, alone, but we come in with um, your presence with us. And while we don't know what the future holds, thank you that we can trust you because you know the future. And so, Lord, uh, we commit this next year to you. And, Lord, we pray that uh, you will take this year and uh, work in our hearts and lives. And, Lord, may we uh, live this year, if you allow us to, uh, for your glory and for your kingdom and to make a difference in this world. And, Lord, thank you for um, each one that is here today. Uh, Lord, we think of many that are, are traveling on this holiday weekend. Lord, give them safety, and we look forward to um, their uh, return and, and um, in the near future. And thank you for all that you will do in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, here we are, another year. And uh, I don't know about you, but as another year clicks off the calendar, I'm uh, reminded of how quickly time passes. A fellow by the name of Bob Buford wrote a book a number of years ago called Halftime. And the emphasis of that book was to kind of challenge people that might be in kind of the, the midpoint of their life and to get them to consider, uh, what can I do to make a difference with the second half of my life? Well, I don't know where you are in that like football analogy of first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, but uh, I'd have to admit this morning... Uh, I'm in the fourth quarter here. Some of you might be in overtime. <laughs> and, and as I think about the passage of another year, I want us to think about life's final exam. And uh, that's what we're going to look at in preparing for life's final exam. And so uh, we're going to think about that, uh, that, that topic. Um, I remember when I was in school, and this was mostly in my um, middle school years and high school years, one of the things that I did not like was when we would show up for a class and the teacher or instructor would say, now I want you to take a piece of paper out of your notebook and put it on your desk because we're going to have a pop quiz or a surprise quiz. And the minute that the teacher would say that, my heart would start to beat a little faster, my palms would get a little sweaty because I don't like surprises. Well, this morning, um, we're going to think about preparing for life's final exam so that none of us are surprised at that uh, that final exam. And so we're going to think about four key truths about life's final exam as we begin our new year together. And, and my prayer and hope is that after we think about this and study this, that it may have some impact on how we live our lives for 2023 and what our priorities are and how we can make a difference uh, for God and for his kingdom. And so that's, uh, that's kind of where we're headed. So let's look at truth number one of these four truths. Here's the first truth, and it's this. There is a final exam, and Jesus is the judge. There is a final exam someday, and Jesus is the judge. Randy Alcorn, in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, writes this. Many Christians mistakenly believe that heaven is our reward. This is absolutely not the case for doing good things. This is absolutely not the case. Our presence in heaven is in no sense a reward for our good works, 
but a gift freely given by God in response to faith in Christ, our works will someday be evaluated by our master, Jesus, and he will reward us accordingly. So someday, there's going to be a final exam. A fellow by the name of C.T. Studd was born in 1860. He was a, a missionary to China and did great work for God's kingdom during his lifetime. But he wrote a famous poem, and it's a rather long poem, but I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs, and maybe this uh, will resonate with you. You've maybe heard this before. Here's what C.T. Studd wrote. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart. And from my mind they would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only one life and what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. There's a final exam someday, and the judge is Jesus, and we're going to have to give an account of our lives. Uh, We'll unpack that in a little bit, but just some scripture to back this up. John chapter 5, verse 22, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So Jesus Christ is going to be the final judge. Our scripture reading uh, this morning, 1 Corinthians 4, 4, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. James chapter 5, verse 8, uh, James is talking about the, the coming of the Lord, the second coming, and in chapter uh, 5, verse 8, he says, the judge is standing at the door, and that judge is Jesus. So I want us to remember that there is a final exam, and Jesus is the judge. Now, let's look at truth number two, and this will kind of clarify what we're talking about um, even further. The scriptures speak of two future judgments, one for the believer who's accepted Christ as the Savior, and one for the unbeliever. So there's two future judgments, one for the believer one for the unbeliever. They're distinct in time. They don't happen at the same time. They're very distinct in nature about what these judgments are all about. And so let's look at, uh, just briefly, the judgment of the unbeliever. So let's think about um, the time frame that we're living in and uh, what the Bible has to say about eschatology. That's the doctrine of the last things. You know, the last chapter's already been written, the book of Revelation, how the world ends. So here we are in the church age, started in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came about 2,000 years ago. The next event on God's prophetic calendar, and there is some minor disagreement over this, but the next event, I believe, is the rapture of the church. It could happen at any moment. Paul writes about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that Christ is going to come back. He doesn't come all the way to earth. He comes in the clouds, and the believers are snatched up. Uh, That's where we get the word, um, the rapture. It's actually a Latin word, raptura, uh, that he will um, take those believers out of this world, and we meet them in the air. 
Following that is a seven-year period where God pours his wrath out upon planet Earth. And that's laid out in the book of Revelation. Actually, chapters 4 through 19 talks about that. Three series of judgments, and each one gets worse and worse, and it will be a horrific time on the, the planet. Uh, following that is the return of Christ, and and it's something called the millennial period where Christ is actually on earth, and he rules and reigns for 1,000 years. We're going to see that some of believers will be ruling and reigning with him as part of our reward. But following all of that is something called the great white throne judgment. And we're going to read about it in, in Revelation chapter 20, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And, and here's John writing about this judgment of unbelievers. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in it. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the judgment called the great white throne judgment where every unbeliever will be judged and cast out into a Christless eternity. Reading verses like that should um, motivate us and compel us to share the gospel with others. Uh, Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, his motivation to share Christ with others. One was the love of Christ. The second was, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we, sh- we share the gospel with people. Well, that's the judgment of, of unbelievers, and uh, we don't want anybody to stand before the great white throne judgment. Um, but what we're going to focus on this morning is this second judgment, and it's the judgment of believers, where if you know Christ as your Savior, um, we will uh, be at that uh, that judgment. So um, here's a little bit about the judgment seat of Christ. Um, one author writes, uh, the judgment seat of Christ, sometimes known as the Bema seat judgment, because the name really means a raised platform. The word Bema means a raised platform that a, a judge would sit on to maybe evaluate uh, an athletic event or to give an award to somebody. Uh, the judgment seat of Christ does not determine our salvation. That was settled by Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and our faith in him. All our sins are forgiven. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. This judgment will be a time of examination and a time of reward or loss of reward. Jesus will inspect our works. What have we done with the resources God has given us? Okay, so this isn't a judgment where determining where we're going to spend eternity. That's already been settled. This is an evaluation, a final exam of 
what we have done with the resources God has given us, uh, like the alliteration, time, talent, and treasure. There are a lot of parables in Scripture, a lot of Scripture verses that refer to this judgment of believers. Let me just read a few uh, verses. Uh, Romans 14, Paul writes about this. Uh, Why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So this is a day of accountability. This is life's final exam. Second Corinthians 5, Paul writes about this as well. And verses 9 and 10. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So someday... Um, We're going to have to stand before God, and this is not to evaluate our salvation, but this is to evaluate how we've lived our life. And it's going to be a time of reward, or perhaps a time of uh, loss of reward because we haven't lived our lives well. So let's just think about truth number three, and it's this. Uh, Various rewards are mentioned all throughout the New Testament. So this this is a concept that is all throughout Scripture, and lots and lots of passages that talk about rewards. Now, how do we use rewards today? We use rewards for motivation, don't we? Um, Our our WANA program with our kids is heavily based on rewards or incentives, and uh, we've got some badges that kids can earn, uh, we have some some candy that they can uh, memorize uh, to uh, uh, candy verses they can memorize to get candy uh, as an incentive, and so we use rewards for motivation. We do that in in school, don't we? At the end of a high school year, uh, there's usually an awards assembly, uh, and so we use rewards for motivation. Now, one uh, Randy Alcorn in his book, Treasure Principle, writes, isn't it wrong to be motivated by reward? And he says, no, it isn't. If it were wrong, Christ would not offer to it uh, as, as a motivation. Rewards are his idea, not ours. So this concept's all through Scripture that there's going to be rewards someday. That was Paul's motivation. Uh, Paul had lots of motivations. We mentioned the love of Christ, the the fear of and uh, terror of of God, that we'll all have to evaluate, um, be evaluated someday. But he writes about rewards. First Corinthians nine twenty five, in using the analogy of a race, run in such a way as to what get the prize. Uh, in other words, there's there's a reward uh, for the race of life. His last epistle is he's reflecting back. On the end of his life, in 2 Timothy 4, he says, My departure is near. I fought the good fight. 
I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there's in store for me what? A crown of righteousness. There's a reward which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all those who've longed for his appearing. And so this concept of rewards is all through the the New Testament. If you read the last uh, chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, the words of Jesus, verse 12, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. So Jesus says, I'm coming back, and I'm bringing some rewards. Now let's think about what those rewards might be, and just just as a general overview, we're going to think about three categories of rewards. You might say, well, what, what are these rewards? And so let's look at three uh, areas that the Bible talks about as far as uh, rewards someday. And uh, the first one is from um, Matthew chapter 25, the reward of words, the reward of words. And so there's a story there of uh, a parable and the owners giving bags of, of gold. Uh, one person gets five bags, one person gets two bags, one person gets one bag. And at the end of their life, they come back and the person that had five bags gave ten to the master. The person that was given two bags gave four to the master. The person that was given one bag just buried that treasure and gave it back to the master. And for the first two that doubled what God had given them in this parable, we read some interesting words in Matthew 25. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And so it's words of commendation. Uh, We talk about standing before God and wanting to hear words. Well done, good and faithful servant. And uh, not everybody will hear those words on uh, that last day of judgment. And so uh, there's the reward of words. There's the reward of rulership, of rulership. Jack Hayford, uh, years ago, wrote a, a chorus called All Hail King Jesus, and sometimes we've sung that chorus here. And part of the words of that song is, and we will reign with him throughout eternity. And so... A part of the rewards is that in uh, the millennial kingdom, God will assign believers positions of rulership. Positions of rulership. I notice the passage we read in Matthew 25. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Many things. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, uh, verse 6, the apostle John uh, writing about that uh, millennial period, it says, Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And so these are positions of responsibility that God is going to uh, give to us based on our faithfulness in this life. 
There's the reward not only of words, the rewards of rulership, but there's the reward of crowns. The Bible talks about different kinds of crowns as a reward. And there are five crowns that are mentioned in the New Testament. Doesn't mean that there aren't more. But let me just share with you, and we don't have time to really uh, look at these in depth. But here are the five crowns that the Bible talks about in James 1 and Revelation 2, the crown of life given for faithfulness to Christ in persecution or martyrdom. There's a special reward for those who have endured persecution, for those through the the history of the church that have uh, been martyred for their faith. They're going to receive the crown of life. There's the incorruptible crown, 1 Corinthians 9, given for discipline and victory in the Christian life. Uh, The crown of rejoicing, given for pouring oneself into others in evangelism and discipleship, 1 Thessalonians 2. Uh, The crown of glory, given for faithfully representing Christ in a position of spiritual leadership. The crown of righteousness, given for joyfully purifying and readying oneself to meet Christ at his return. And Randy Alcorn in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, says, what are we going to do with these crowns? And uh, here's, here's his uh, uh, speculation, maybe perhaps based on some good scripture references. The crowns bring glory to Christ as they are laid before his feet, Revelation 4.10, showing that our rewards are given not merely for our recognition, but for God's glory. So he says, what are we going to do with these crowns? We're not going to keep them. He says, we're going to, we're going to offer them back to Christ for his honor and glory. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of showing up at a, a birthday party for somebody and everybody else has brought a gift and you, for some reason, didn't bring one. Or, or maybe it's a housewarming and, and somebody's uh, having people over and they've got this new house and everybody's bringing a housewarming gift and you didn't, didn't get one and there's a feeling of maybe like, oh, embarrassment and shame. And uh, so someday the, the rewards of crowns are going to be given out and we want to live faithfully uh, so that we can bring those crowns back to the feet of Jesus. Well, key truth number four, uh, the scriptures instruct us how to earn great reward in heaven. So we're just going to spend a few minutes. You might uh, say, well, how can I get these rewards? And so we're going to give you just a little bit of a pathway, some encouragement from scripture. Here's what God's looking for. And here's how we can live our lives in 2023 so someday we can get a great reward in heaven. So what is God looking for? Well, just going to mention a few areas there. This is not comprehensive. But God is looking for good works, good deeds. Now, we know very clearly from Scripture that we are not saved by works. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's all what God has done for us and faith in him and his grace to us. But verse 10, the very next verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul writes this, For we are God's 
handiwork, some translations say workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so we're not saved by works, but we are saved, what? To do good works. And God has laid out a plan and individually gifted us, and he has given us an assignment to do good works. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, talking about the context of of, uh, employment and working uh, faithfully for our employer. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever they do. So faithfulness at our job uh, is is perhaps a part of this as well, that God will uh, reward us for. Hebrews chapter 10, where the author of Hebrews says, hey, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't stop meeting together as Christians. Then in verse 24, he says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So one of the reasons that we come together as Christians is to, yes, to worship, but to what? Encourage each other to love one another and to do good deeds. Good deeds like change your world through putting some coins in here so that people can hear the gospel. Good deeds like Operation Christmas Child, where we can uh, put a, a shoebox together and eventually uh, send it overseas and it's delivered to, to kids that perhaps would never hear about Christ's love and eventually through that shoebox hear about the gospel. And so God is looking for faithfully doing good works. But let me remind you that he's also going to evaluate our, our motive. Uh, that verse that we read in our scripture reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul says, the Lord will judge me. He will bring to light the what's been in the dark, and he will expose the motives of our hearts. So not only will he evaluate what we do, but here's the scary part for me, he's going to evaluate and know why we do it. And so... Um, good, good works done for the glory of God. Uh, here's the second one. Acts of kindness and compassion to those in need. Acts of kindness and compassion to those in need. I remember three or four years ago, maybe it's been longer than that, maybe it's been five years ago, that there was a family that lived... Uh, not too far from the church, maybe five or six miles away, but they were close to some folks associated with our church. And I remember some folks coming to me and telling me that um, their house burned down. And they basically lost everything. And we didn't know this family, but uh, was a neighbor to some folks that we knew. And so um, the challenge was, well, what can we do about this? And so I remember that time period that we kind of set up the the, the church as a, a collection point, not only for uh, people in our own church, but for the community. And people began to drop off clothes and drop off uh, different items that this family could use. And uh, we decided to send a gift of, out of our benevolent fund to this, this family that no longer had a place to live. 
God is looking for things like that. And that does not go unnoticed. Acts of kindness and compassion to those in need. Remember the Old Testament that there's the law of the gleaners? God's got a heart for poor and needy people. And so he instructed the Israelites, hey, when you harvest your field, I want you to leave the corners. Don't harvest everything, but leave the corners for those that are needy so that they can come along and glean um, the rest of your harvest. Acts of kindness and compassion to those in need. Jesus almost assumes that we're doing this. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, he says, So when you give to the needy. <laughs> so when you give to the needy. And he instructs us with some parameters about how to give. Think about Luke chapter 14 in verses 12 through 14. This, uh familiar passage. Here's what Jesus said to his host. Um, he was at the house of a Pharisee for dinner. That had to be an interesting uh, evening. And so here's what he said. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. So if you invite your friends over, your rich neighbor, you're going to give them a meal and then they're going to feel obligated to give you a meal and uh, then you'll be even. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. God will reward you for acts of kindness and compassion to the needy. Thirdly, what is God looking for? Uh, financial investment in God's kingdom. Financial investment in God's kingdom. Uh, the famous question that was asked to uh, a Rockefeller years ago, how much did he leave? And the answer is all of it. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. That's why uh, someone has said, do your giving while you're living, then you're knowing where it's going. God is looking for financial investment in his kingdom Matthew chapter 6, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Paul, in his uh, thank you note from written from prison in um, the book of Philippians chapter 4, verse 17, and he's thanking the believers because they sent him a financial gift, and he says, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more may be credited to your account. In other words, your investment in my ministry is going to be credited to your account someday. So as we faithfully give, as we faithfully invest in God's kingdom, um, we are investing in a future reward. And so as we have the opportunity to support missions here through your giving, their ministry will eventually be connected to our future reward 
In other words, as we invest financially in them, it'll be credited to our account someday, uh, people that have come to know Christ as Savior. Uh, one couple more here, and then we're, and then we're done. Um, number four here, faithfully enduring persecution and suffering because of Christ. Faithfully enduring persecution and suffering because of Christ. Uh, this is happening all over the world today, where uh, many countries um, uh, persecute Christians. And uh, those that faithfully endure that persecution will be rewarded someday. I think of Hebrews chapter 11, talking about Moses. And, of course, he grew up in Pharaoh's household. Um, and it says, He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt. In other words, he, he decided to identify with God's people because he was looking ahead, what, to his reward. And so... Enduring persecution and suffering because of Christ. Uh, lastly, and there are, there are many more ways, but uh, the private practice of spiritual disciplines. The private practice of spiritual disciplines. So, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, uh, Jesus is talking about spiritual disciplines. He's talking about giving, praying, and fasting. Notice what he has to say. When he talks about giving, he talks about giving quietly, um, n- not like the um, Pharisees used to do, and they used to draw great attention to them when they gave. And he says, so that your giving may be in secret, this is Matthew 6, 4, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. A prayer, uh, Matthew 6, 6. Uh, don't go out on the street corners and pray so that everybody can see you. Do it, uh, do it privately. But when you pray, go into your room and close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Same thing about fasting. Uh, do it privately, not to be seen by men. And then what? God will reward you someday. And so there is a final exam for unbelievers, the great white throne judgment, for you and I, an evaluation of our lives by Judge Jesus. What have we done with our time, talent, and treasure to advance God's kingdom? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I'd like to close by um, reading this rather a long uh, story here, but it's an allegory that uh, Dr. Bill Rudd, a uh, longtime pastor in Muskegon area, Calvary uh, Church, uh, wrote about 20 years ago, and I had a, have a copy of it. And it just, to me, drives home this whole um, principle of what we are talking about And he does a little speculation here about how this might um, work out in the future of of getting rewards for our faithful service. So I want to read it. It'll probably take about five minutes. And then we have a closing song by a fellow by the name of Ray Bowles that we're going to play. And it's uh, just a thank you. And it says, thank you for giving to the Lord. And thank you for investing in his kingdom. And and then we'll be done. So this is an allegory, and uh, it's entitled, If Only He Had Known. If Only He Had Known. 
Sam could see the emergency room doctors and nurses working urgently around him. He was vaguely aware that they were working on him, starting an IV on one side, checking his blood pressure on the other. He could even hear the beeping of the machine that tracked his vital signs, and yet he was strangely dispassionate, almost disconnected from it all. We're losing him, an intern anxiously barked from somewhere behind him. Slowly, the light in the room grew dim, and then there was only blackness. Sam Anderson, welcome to heaven. Somehow Sam knew instinctively that the smiling man who held out his hand was Peter. It was almost as if he'd known him his entire life. It's my privilege to take you to the reward house to receive your crowns, Peter said as he put his strong arm around Sam's shoulder and guided him down a golden mansion-lined avenue through the dazzling city. The reward house was the largest building Sam had ever seen. The two men entered a small lobby where Peter stepped up to a computer terminal and typed in Sam's name. Peter led Sam into an elevator and entered the digits of Sam's reward suite. As they approached suite F204, Sam was overcome with excitement and anxiety. The prospect of receiving an eternal reward was exhilarating, but the possibility of being told that his life had been wasted filled him with dread. Sam and Peter stepped through the door, bearing Sam's name into a vestibule with a door on either side. This way, Peter indicated as he led Sam through the door on the right into a gymnasium-sized room filled with gigantic shelves, row after row, floor to ceiling and wall to wall. Every shelf was filled with the most magnificent crowns Sam had ever seen. Well done, Peter congratulated him. All these are yours. Incredulously, Sam stepped over to one of the shelves and quickly realized that they were arranged chronologically, representing every day of his life, beginning with his conversion in 1983. The shelf immediately in front of him was labeled June 5th, 1994. The first crown bore the inscription, Crown of Rejoicing, and below it was the name Fred Bowerman. Instantly, Sam remembered that wonderful day when he had led his neighbor to Christ. He never realized that there would be an eternal reward for that. Peter pointed to a second crown, the crown of rejoicing next to the first, and indicated that Sam had earned it that same day when he prayed for the Olson family, who were missionaries in South America. The Peruvian Indian who accepted Christ that day was the fruit of Sam's prayers as much as he was of the Olson's witness. Sam's tithes that supported him likewise gave him partnership in their converts. The June 5th shelf had one more crown. This was inscribed the crown of glory. And was, Peter explained, because on that same day, Sam had phoned a boy in his Sunday school class to let him know that he had been missed the previous Sunday. Sam was overcome with the realization that the entire room was filled with crowns God was giving him for actions that he had never realized had such significance. Tears of joy and gratitude streamed down his cheeks. When he regained his composure, Sam turned to Peter. But what will I do with these crowns? I can only wear one at a time. Oh, don't worry about that, Peter said. You see, every day at 3 o'clock we have a great ceremony around the rainbow throne in the middle of the city. 
All who wish may bring one of their crowns each day and lay it at the feet of King Jesus as a gift of worship and gratitude for his love and grace. Sam could scarcely contain his excitement as he realized that for thousands of days he would stand in line to lovingly lay one of his crowns at the feet of Jesus. Peter interrupted Sam's thoughts. I have to be going soon, another new arrival, you know. He mentioned toward the, the vestibule, motion toward the vestibule, I have to show you the other room too. The two men crossed the vestibule and stepped through the second door into a room the size of a gigantic warehouse. Like the first room, this one was filled with shelves and every one of them was lined with row after row of spectacularly beautiful crowns. What are these, Sam asked as he scanned the seemingly endless number of crowns before him. Peter shook his head sadly. I hate this part of my job. These are all the crowns you could have earned, but you missed the opportunity. Approaching a shelf marked June 5th, 1994, like its counterpart, Sam spotted five crowns of rejoicing representing other opportunities he had to share his faith that day. The gas station attendant, his secretary, a co-worker, a waiter at lunch, the salesman who had asked him about his church, but he hadn't taken the opportunity crown of life reminded him of the bad attitude he had nursed over his failure to get a promotion at work. Sam was overcome with the realization that he had failed to take seriously scores of opportunities every day to serve his Lord and follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Now every one of those represented a day of eternity when he would not have the privilege of laying a crown at the feet of his Savior He began to sob uncontrollably as he realized his failure to take his Christian life more seriously. Now it was forever too late. Sam woke up in a cold sweat. Beside him in his bed was his wife sleeping peacefully. He could hear the wind and the rain outside the bedroom window. It was all a dream. Sam slipped out of bed downstairs to the living room. He opened his Bible to 2 Corinthians 5.10, laid it on the couch in front of him as he kneeled to beg God's forgiveness and to rededicate himself to invest his life, his days, and his moments for eternity. For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Well, Ray Boltz sang a wonderful song way back in 1988, and it's entitled Thank You. And I hope this is encouragement to you uh, to realize that the things that we do now uh, for God's kingdom uh, make a difference for all eternity. Let's, uh, let's watch it, and then we'll be done.
And he said, friend, you may not know me now. And he said, wait. You used to teach my Sunday school. I was only eight. Every week you would say a prayer before the class would start. One day when you said that prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a light that was changed. Another man stood before you. He said, Remember the time a missionary came to your church. His pictures made you cry. You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. Jesus took the gift you gave, and that's why I'm in heaven. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am the life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am so glad. One by one they came, far as your eyes could see. Each life somehow touched by your generosity. Little things that you had done, sacrifices you made, they were unnoticed on this earth. Now proclaim, and I know up in heaven you're not supposed to cry. But I'm almost sure there were tears in your eyes as Jesus took your hand and you stood before the Lord. He said, "My child." Great is your reward. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a light that was changed. Thank you for giving to. I'm
We stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, we're thankful for this challenge this morning to live our lives that will have an eternal impact. Lord, help us to realize that uh, the things that we see, uh, the material things of this world are, are passing things. But only the things of eternity will last. So, Lord, help us to make, be wise stewards of our time, our talent, and our treasure. Lord, help us to realize that we won't realize the impact of a life faithfully lived for you until we get to eternity. So I thank you for Community Bible Church. I thank you for those that faithfully invest their time, talent, and treasure in this ministry. Thank you for our missionaries in Papua New Guinea and in Scotland and in various places around the world, the United States, that we have a privilege of partnering with. We pray that you would bless their ministry. And Lord, help us to live faithfully this year for you so that someday we can hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord,